I'm Talib Vizram, and you're listening to Fast Break, your weekly source of inspiration and motivation in these uncertain times. This week, we'll learn about how one song could have helped end the Cold War, why public bathroom design is more important than you might think, and check in with Lauren Bosworth as she leads her company from home. This is your Fast Break. Usually, when we hear rock music, it carries a sense of rebellion and anti-establishment. Think Rage Against the Machine's Killing in the Name, Green Day's Holiday, and even the often misunderstood Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. But that a power ballad could also be connected to US foreign policy and spreading soft power is why I've invited Jeff Beer on the show today. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. Hey, Talib, thanks. So let's start off with what exactly a power ballad is. Well, the Urban Dictionary defines power ballad as an emotional hard rock or heavy metal song, often with a slow tempo, dramatic sung vocals, and many instruments, including acoustic ones and synthesizers. I would add to that lighters in the air, big hair, wide stances on the stage. You know, I think if you need a perfect example, if there was like a you know, an audio recording in, the, in that dictionary next to this definition, it would be the Scorpion's Wind of Change from 1991. <laughs> Well, I listened to it this morning and it's been stuck in my head all day. And I feel like it's going to be on my throwback Spotify playlist. But how does this song relate to the CIA? The connection to the CIA has been, it's like an urban myth, like a legend that somehow it was orchestrated to somehow inspire Russian youth to push for more change as the momentum of the Berlin Wall falling was already there that maybe the CIA and the US government wanted to see that momentum carry even further and and wanted to use some soft power of pop culture to help that happen. So, you know, since we don't want any spoilers here, we'll stick to the story behind the scenes. How did this show come together? Well, it's a podcast with New Yorker investigative journalist and best-selling author Patrick Radden Keefe. And basically the whole podcast is about him exploring this rumor And it's not just this, an urban myth that, you know, is off Reddit, which is totally valid, but through his work as a journalist, he has friends and contacts who have worked in the CIA. And this story actually came from a friend who had worked in the CIA and had heard, you know, what they call one of these gray beard CIA folks, an older guy telling the story about that time back in the day when the CIA helped write one of the most popular songs of the 20th century, it turns out. And he just couldn't get it out of his mind. So he just started, you know, pulling at the thread. And, th- and, and that pulling of the thread is essentially this podcast. And so he pitched it to Pineapple Studios and Crooked Media, who do, you know, Pod Save America, they got involved. And then they, they took it to Spotify. And obviously, the podcast is available everywhere. It's coming out weekly, like a lot of podcasts do. But if you're a Spotify subscriber, all eight episodes have dropped all at once. And it's interesting, I talked to uh, Spotify's head of network programming, Liz Gately, and, and she said this is the first podcast that she bought immediately in the room. 
Also, the senior producer here from Pineapple Street is Henry Malofsky, who, if you don't know that name, he worked on the popular Headlong series, which amazing podcasts like Missing Richard Simmons, Surviving Y2K, and Running From Cops. So as a part of the team putting this together, him combined with Keith, it's a really interesting mix of uh, investigative journalists and uh, some of the best podcast producers around. Totally. I remember the hype around Serial and S-Town. So where does Wind of Change land in the canon of narrative nonfiction podcasts? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's not true crime uh, and it's not, it's not investigating something that definitely happened, which makes it kind of weird. It's like, there's one thing of like, did this actually happen? And then there's the other issue of how did it happen if it actually did? Or if it didn't, why do people think it did? And certainly, why did this rumor come from the CIA itself? Why is this story going around the agency? But after li I've listened to six, sorry, seven of the, uh, of the eight episodes, and I can say that it's just this fantastic mix of, speaking of like nonfiction narrative podcasts, I mean, it's a mix of a lot of different genres. You've got music, there's sort of one episode's almost like a behind the music episode on the first Western rock and roll concert festival that was held ever in Moscow in 89 and how that came together. But there's this mix of music, espionage, a bit of drug running, Cold War politics, and some compelling implications and parallels to today in 2020. So, I mean, it's a lot to pack into eight episodes and it's a lot to even think about in the context of this Scorpion song. I'm really excited to tune in and it's just too bad the song's in English because I've started to learn German while in quarantine. <laughs> well, they did a, they did actually did a, a Russian language version of it. They play a little bit in the podcast, but I'm not going to give away anything. One thing I can say is whether this legend is true or not, it really is a great tour through a fascinating part and aspects of Cold War culture and all the weird side players involved. I mean, you've got... And, and as, as crazy as this whole premise sounds of, you know, the CIA writing a song, you know, we go into things like how a CIA shell front helped bring Nina Simone to, uh, to Nigeria. And she had, had no idea. It was, it was through this foundation. There's, there's a, a Russian tour that uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band did that there's various, you know, rumblings around. And then you've got this guy, this, this rock manager named Doc McGee, who, who managed the Scorpions, Motley Crue, Bon Jovi, Skid Row. And he organized that big concert in Moscow. And there's all these, his personal history alone, I believe it's like maybe episode five, is worth listening to this entire podcast for. I mean, you've got a cameo by, uh, not in the podcast literally, but in the story, uh, Manuel Noriega pops up. Like it is all over the place. So there are enough twists and turns here that actually make the confirmation of whether or not the CA wrote Wind of Change, which is like the premise of the whole thing, it almost makes that besides the point. This whole investigation, like the weird side roads, as with any road trip, the weird side roads almost make the trip more interesting than, than getting to the destination. I guess it would be a spoiler to ask if there is closure at the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm not going to answer that. I, I actually don't know the answer because I'm not finished. But okay. I will say that I'm super excited to listen to the last episode. Well, I'm excited to start. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jeff. Thanks, Tal.
Come to think of it, what's the difference between rock and rock and roll? Is rock and roll just the full term or is it a different genre? Rock makes me think of 80s and mullets and Axl Rose screaming. Rock and roll makes me think of the 50s and Elvis and shaking hips and soda fountains and thunderbirds. And of course, Little Richard, who we sadly lost last week. We'll be right back after this short break. As the US starts to reopen, there are a lot of safety measures companies must consider. One necessary but often overlooked space is the public restroom. Here to help us get to the bottom of this is Lara Sorokanich. Welcome to the show, Lara. Thanks for having me, Talib. At the beginning of the outbreak, the general health guidelines included hand washing, not touching your face, and staying six feet apart from one another. But there were no best practices for using a public restroom. How might that be a concern for people returning to offices in public venues? Yeah, so if you think about the way that bathrooms are organized in the United States, they're really not good at not spreading infections. We tend to have these large bathrooms with lots of stalls and the tops and bottoms are open, which can be kind of disturbing just from like a privacy standpoint. But they also don't do very well at blocking germs from crossing from one toilet over into the other. So I wrote a story about redesigning bathrooms for the co-design section of our website. And one of the most horrifying things that I found out about was this phenomenon called a toilet plume, which is essentially whenever you flush a toilet, whatever is inside flies out into the air in all directions. And they anticipate that it's about six feet in every direction. And if you think about most public bathrooms, they don't have lids on the toilets and, you know, it can fly right over the top of that flimsy plastic divider and into the next bathroom stall. So not only are you getting covered and coated in, you know, whatever was in the toilet bowl, but there's actually the possibility that it can fly over the stall and and get all over the person next to you, which is really like probably one of the worst things I've ever heard uh, in terms of like cleanliness and hygiene. So we really, you know, just from a basic standpoint of how bathrooms are laid out in the United States, it's not really set up to not spread germs in this way. In your own house, you can put the lid down, but in, in a public bathroom, they don't even have lids to sort of prevent that from happening. Wow. Well, the concept of toilet plume is going to haunt my dreams now. Thank you. (laughs) You're (laughs) welcome. It's been haunting mine for about a week now. (laughs) And we know that COVID-19 has been found in human poop. Yeah. So most of the way that COVID spreads is through aerosols. So you breathe in the cough droplets of someone who's infected with the virus. But there have been studies about how COVID could spread through the bathroom. And it turns out At least a preliminary study by the CDC showed that there were traces of the virus in human poop for up to 33 days, even after infected people had recovered. So those people could test negative for the virus and go back to work by all of the standards for being in public, but their poop could still have traces of the virus in it. And 
scientists have also found that you can get the virus from something called fecal oral transmission, which is also really gross. It has to do with the germs from human excrement getting into your mouth and and getting you know into your body that way and there have been studies that show that the virus can spread that way so you know when you're talking about this issue of germs flying over the stall not only is it gross it also poses this problem that you know someone in the stall next to you could come in contact with your germs and your viruses through that and you know you could be fully recovered but they could still get sick from that interaction learning so many new terms today that I I didn't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't seem like just washing your hands will be that helpful. What are some improvements companies could make over the next few months to prepare for employees? The most logical answer to start with, if not a convenient answer, is adding lids to toilets. There have been lots of studies outside of COVID-19 that show that just closing the lid on a toilet will prevent that toilet plume from flying everywhere. It will still go down onto the ground, but that's a lot less concerning than you know our previously discussed situation. Given that the toilet plume also, if you're in a single stall bathroom in like a restaurant or something, can also fly onto the faucets, the door handles, things like that, a lot of places are going to opt for touchless. So those dispensers where you just run your hand under the faucet and the water turns on. Same for soap. I spoke to a designer at Kohler, which is a big producer of commercial bathroom supplies, and they said they're expecting to see a lot of people interested in transferring their typical faucets and soap dispensers into things that you don't have to touch. And over at American Standard, which is a similar company that does a lot of commercial bathrooms, they're also seeing a huge uptick in touchless technologies. So how could restroom remodeling become more of a priority for U.S. businesses? So I reached out to uh, an organization called the American Restroom Association. You learn about all kinds of strange things on these stories. And there, there is an organization whose primary purpose is to think about public bathrooms. And they really have been advocating for these single stall, gender neutral bathrooms for a very long time. Prior to this, for sociological reasons, you know, making sure people feel comfortable using whatever restroom is available. But in this case, those single stalls are really helpful in that they prevent that situation of the toilet plume getting onto the people next to you. It will still potentially get all over you, but that's slightly less horrifying than it transmitting from you to the person in the stall one over. Aside from updating the toilet design, are there other areas to modify? American Standard also said that they're expecting to see a lot of interest in sort of slightly adapted technologies for bathrooms. So we may see, especially in places like public schools, that sinks will get deeper and have steeper sloped walls to prevent splashback. So when people wash their hands, you won't get water all over you that's covered in your and other people's germs. I have to say this is the most I've ever thought about public bathrooms. Yeah, for sure. Me too. They're a necessary reality for opening back up and something that the American Restroom Association doesn't think that we do enough thinking about. And, you know, it's going to be essential if if people are back in public, they're going to have to use the bathrooms. So beyond the toilet stalls and flushing, how else do they present a problem for society now? 
something that I spoke to architect Catherine Anthony about, who is a board member at the American Restroom Association, is when you think about really packed public spaces, things like concerts, museums, public parks, there's always this phenomena of women having to wait in line longer than men. You know, you at a stadium, you may see women having to wait for 20 or 30 minutes, men waltz right into the bathroom and waltz right out. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. But if you have gender neutral restrooms, you more evenly distribute those groups of people so that you don't have one restroom where people are breezing in and out and there are empty stalls not being used and another where lots of people are waiting in line forever. Something else that they've been talking about is people will not want to touch door handles. You know, less touching of everything in general is probably going to be a trend. And there are ways you can design bathrooms. You often see these in airports that don't have an exit door at all. You just take the layout and you make sort of an S shape from the main corridor into the bathroom so that it hides all of the stalls from the outside but you don't have to have a door to block someone in order to do that. The women's lines for the bathroom will be even longer with social distancing measures in place. Should people just avoid public restrooms altogether? I certainly think that's a personal choice. I mean, going out, I will probably do whatever I can to not have to use public bathrooms. But the fact of the matter is you have people with children, you have people with health problems, and sometimes people just have to go to the bathroom. So yeah, on a personal basis, I think it's probably best to try to keep your going to the restroom in your own private space. But eventually, if people go back to work, if people are trying to get it back out in public, you're going to have to deal with these issues. And, and it's worthwhile for businesses all around the country to think about what they can do to make people feel more comfortable. People aren't going to go to your restaurant or your museum or your concert if they don't feel safe going to the bathroom there. So it's, it's really, it should be a priority and is important. So moving forward, is it more a matter of updated design or changing how people behave? So there's a little bit of a paradox here. You know, on one hand, it's a wonderful opportunity for the country to think about how it works with its public bathrooms and how they're designed, how they can make them better. The American Restroom Association thinks that American restrooms in particular are pretty barbaric compared to some of what you see in Europe or Asia. So of course, if you're a business that's investing in cleaning up your space, in putting lines on the floor to make sure people are socially distanced, you should also probably think about what you can do to make your bathroom feel safer. On the other hand, someone else I spoke to was Andrew Dent, who's from a company called Material Connection, and they research basically what the best materials are for different products. And I came to him asking about, you know, these germ-covered bathrooms and, and whether we should be doing something with design to make them better. And the good news was he kind of reiterated to me and emphasized that bathrooms are made out of this material that's meant to be disinfected. It's meant to be wiped down. You can use bleach and other kinds of harsh, really effective chemicals to kill germs on bathroom hardware. And bathrooms are cleaned all the time, at least once a day, and probably after COVID, you know, going to be cleaned even more often than that. So 
in a lot of ways, we are well set up for bathrooms and the germs in them to be handled better than, say, the germs on a couch in a waiting room or the drapes in a restaurant. You know, those things aren't thoroughly cleaned very often and they're much harder to clean than just pouring bleach on them. There are design solutions that can make sure that people don't touch things as much and that helps with germs but as far as looking at the world around you and being concerned about germs bathrooms are actually pretty clean all things said and they're often cleaned so you don't have the buildup of germs that you might somewhere else well as if i haven't been dousing myself with disinfectant already i will certainly be using copious amounts of purell for the foreseeable future yeah i think i think we all will and and for good reason <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on the show, Lara. Sure, thank you for having me. This genuinely is the most I've thought about public bathrooms and splashbacks and toilet plume. And it made me realize that most restrooms back home, or public toilets as we'd crudely say, are closed off from ceiling to floor, so you can't peek on other people's feet. My personal takeaway from all this? Mind the gap. Next, we'll hear from Lauren Bosworth as she explains how she's been managing her workload from home. Hi, everybody. I am Lauren Bosworth. I'm the founder and CEO of Love Wellness. We make clean, body-positive personal care products for women. And I am coming to you from Bedford, New York. Um, we are located in New York City as a business, and we typically operate out of our office in Soho. My work from home setup is right here for now. My cool bed, I got my computer. And as a team though, I will say that this moment um, has been really interesting for us. We have established very set and specific schedules with everybody. Uh, we have a daily conference call from nine to 10 a.m. in the morning where everybody gives a quick update. And then uh, my partner and I do team updates at the end of the day as well, 15 minute sessions with everybody. And our productivity has actually been really high. Uh, I will say that this is a really interesting time and it feels like we have to pivot every single day to some kind of um, new news or regulation. Um, and so we are doing our best to just stay on top of everything. You know, we're still able to um, ship our product out to people. So that is definitely um, a saving grace for us. You know, we have lots of inventory and we're doing our best to make our products as widely accessible as we possibly can. So everybody has been staying in pretty good spirits it's really nice to be able to connect with everybody on the team kind of all day long every single day and we're doing a lot of facetimes and on friday afternoons we are definitely having cocktails with our end of the day conference calls so i hope that you are staying safe and healthy at home and i wish you well that's it for this week fast break was produced by avery miles be sure to check in with us next week for another roundup of helpful tips and creative ideas to stay positive throughout this challenging time. You can subscribe to Fast Break on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you like this show, please leave us a rating or a review. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizram. <laughs>